Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are at the Parsha where Israel receives Torah at Sinai. We've been coming out of Egypt, we've been crossing the sea, we've been doing some journeying, and we come to Parshat Yitro, and I thought, here we are at Parshat Yitro again, and I open my folder, I have a hard folder for every Torah portion, and I'm like, how come I'm always going over the same material for Yitro? Why does it always feel like it's the same old stuff? And it's like, oh. Then I looked at Hebkal, you know, where we find our triennial reading, and it's a full Kriya. It's the full reading every triennial year. So it's like there is no division of Yitro into thirds. And so I am actually teaching the same material every year. Um, so that means that, you know, we get to just kind of, well, Bert says because I'm the rabbi, I get to pick where it is that we jump in. Um, so we're not reading on the triennial cycle for Yitro because the whole thing is read every year. That generally means it's a shorter it's a shorter Parsha. For a shorter Parsha, they don't break it up because then you'd have a third that really didn't have enough meat in it. We're going to look then at, what did I say? Chapter 19. We are after the incident after which the Parsha is named. So Yitro is Moshe's father-in-law. It's Tzipporah's father who comes and tells Moshe that he's nuts and he's... He's exhausting himself and the people by being the only one to hear the people's complaints and to adjudicate the disputes between the people. Uh, and he says, you need somebody over 10, somebody over 100, somebody over 1,000, and then the big stuff only should come to you, Moses. We, that's chapter 18. Chapter 19, we're at the third new moon after the Israelites have left Egypt. And God calls to Moshe to come up to the mountain and God is going to explain what's to happen. So we're going to look at chapter 19, verse 7. Moses came and summoned the elders of the people and put before them all that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered as one, saying, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses brought back the people's words to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, I will come to you in a thick cloud in order that the people may hear what I speak with you, and so trust you forever after. Then Moses reported the people's words to the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and warn them to stay pure today and tomorrow. Let them wash their clothes, let them be ready for the third day, for on the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people on Mount Sinai. You shall set bounds for the people round about, saying... Beware of going up the mountain or touching the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be either stoned or shot, beast or man who shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they may go up on the mountain. God says to Moshe, come up here. Moshe goes up and God says, so if they will obey me and keep my covenant, then... This people shall be my treasured possession. So Moshe comes to the elders and says to the elders what God has just said to him, that if the people will accept my covenant and follow my commandments, then they will be to me an amsegula, 
a right treasured people, and they will be a holy nation. Yeah. So what is the answer? What do people say? Sure. Sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. Right? Whatever. Not said. What everything. Everything that God has said, we will do. But God hasn't said that. God hasn't said exactly what that's going to mean. <laughs> yet. Right? So they... They answer essentially, yes, we're willing to enter into this covenant. So God says to Moshe that God will come in a thick cloud in order that people will hear when I speak with you and trust you ever after. Because we know who we're dealing with, right? We're dealing with mm-hmm. Jews. <laughs> so, uh, so God knows that God needs to do something that's going to up Moshe's and solidify Moshe's authority as God's chosen spokesperson, so God is going to appear in a cloud, or manifest right in a cloud, and then speak in front of the people so that they trust in Moshe ever after, as if that's possible with the Jewish people. It's interesting that he says trust in Moshe and not trust in Yudhei mm-hmm. God doesn't seem to be terribly concerned here about his ego, <laughs> about their loyalty to God, mm-hmm. but very concerned about their loyalty to Moshe. Will the people hear God? Presumably, yes. <laughs> right? Because they're, they're gonna right. they're gonna witness well, this. They're gonna see the cloud and everything That the people may hear when I speak with you. Mm-hmm. So that they will hear this as well. Isn't there a midrash that God picked up the mountain and held it over the Jews and said, What do you think? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, we'll and get, they we'll get said, <laughs> All right, so uh, Moshe reported the people's words to God. So Moshe goes to God and says, okay, they said yes. Then God said to Moses, then go to the people and warn them to stay pure today and tomorrow uh, and let them wash, right? So this is going to be a sacred experience. If this is a sacred experience, there are certain conditions on that, that they can't be impure, right? So they're not to have sexual intercourse. They're going to have to wash, right? They're, have, they're going to do those things. They're going to put them in a ritual state of readiness, right? Of, of purity, so all this makes sense. So let them be ready for the third day, for on the third day God will come down in the sight of the people on Mount Sinai. You shall set bounds for the people, right, around the sacred site. And you'll tell them, beware of going up the mountain or touching even the border of it, right? Because God is going to come down onto the mountain. Once that happens, what happens to the mountain? Nuclear. It's nuclear. It's supercharged. And so God is saying, don't touch it. Right? Don't this is now the site of a theophany. This is now an intensely sacred space. Do not touch it. This is you don't touch that kind of sacred stuff. You can't. Because you cannot absorb white the power of that. So it says first he's going to come with a cloud. And now it says in the sight of the people. So I don't get it. The cloud is supposed to shield the vision of him, of her. The cloud is the manifestation of Yudhe Bafet. Oh, so it sight is the, the way that, that God will disrupt, the will, will concentrate God's self in such a way that visually it manifests as an anan, okay. right, a cloud. So think of it as... 
so God's kavod, right? That's what they will see mm-hmm. is God's kavod, God's glory, God's presence, God's whatever. Uh, and so I like to think of it as like the looking through the gasoline <laughs> of your tailpipe, <laughs> right? Like that you still see everything on the other mm-hmm. side, but it's kind of maybe, distorted, maybe. right? Because there's something there, gas. You know, or whatever gas emissions, um, but you don't see those. You see the distortion in the visual field that it causes. So it's for me, it's something like that. That the anan is not God. The anan, the anan is God's concentrated presence, kind of disrupting, right? You're changing the atmosphere. If that makes any sense. And God was physically leading them with a cloud. We had that last week. And a pillar of fire. And a pillar of fire. And now we have the cloud not as a physical leading, but as a moral leading. Beautiful Midrash. God is warning the people then here. Yes. Watch out. Yes. Be very careful what you touch. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. By the way, I know this is crazy, but it says the, uh, but he shall be either stoned or shot. Yeah. Because the law is is don't. In this. Oh, and this Not is guns. the first time we've seen this. Don't touch this. That's yeah. right. Don't touch it. It's it's a common thing. If you're going to accept my covenant and follow my commandments, commandment number one, listen to me. Listen to me. Don't touch the mountain. Because I said so. Because I said so. And because I will be there in a different way, and it is now sanctified, and you... Regular people may not have contact with it. We, of course, are going to see this more clearly when we see the Mishkan, when we see the tabernacle, and later, of course, where it's actually happening in Israel is the temple. Right? That there are different roles and different ways of interacting with the sacred for different people. And that's still part of why women are not allowed to touch the wall. Correct. Correct. Wait, wait, I'm sorry. Say that again. The, the women's wall movement. Yeah. The women are not allowed in the same segment as Right. They because can't touch that part of the wall. They can't even be in that. But, but it's not about it's touching the wall. No, no. It's, it's, it's not about, about touching the wall. With the men. It's about not being with men, right? Yeah. So that women. That's another sacred area. <laughs> that women will distract men from their right. prayer. Uh, it's why men and women are segregated, so that men can concentrate more appropriately on their prayer because they can't be trusted with their sexual impulses. Um, They can't manage their own concentration. So women have to be removed. Right? I mean, it's it's just the most insulting to men thing you can think of, right? Mm -hmm. We always focus on how it's insulting to women. That's, you know, newsflash of the Department of Dove. But (laughs) I think it's terribly insulting to men. You can't concentrate if there are women around, really? Really? (laughs) Okay, so. Rabbi, sexual intercourse is regarded as uh, not clean. I'm sorry? Ritually. Yes, you are ritually impure when you have had sexual intercourse. Or when women are in menstruation. Bodily fluids of any kind are ritually impurifying. But that's not a value judgment. Is that no, it's it not, not a value, value judgment. judgment. Yeah. It is saying there's a state of purity and a state of impurity. There's a state of regularity and a state of dysregularity. Purity is regularity. Impurity is dysregular. So there is something different happening in the body when one is menstruating. There's something different happening when 
a man has a night emission, right? Mm-hmm. It is a different state, and different means impure. No, by definition. Heard, menstruation is regularity. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Menstruation is regular when we talk about periodic. Mm-hmm. It is not regular because it is not the case for most of the time. Daily. Our bodies are not menstruating most of the time. Mm-hmm. Therefore, what is regular is how we are three weeks out of the month, not one. Okay. But but yes, the but it comes regularly. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, used to. Um, so, so, but it is, and, and we've had this conversation before about what purity and impurity, <coughs> and all of that. We have a hard trouble understanding that because we not a, put a value a, judgment. Pure to us means it's good, and impure is bad. Right. Right. But I don't spend a lot of time on purity and impurity. We have plenty of conversations about that coming up with the Mishkan and those of you who are new to Torah study. We'll have lots of questions then. So, and we welcome those questions, but we're going to have lots of those conversations, I promise. All right, so we are now at... Uh, 14. Right, at 14, yeah. <clears throat> well, there's going to be a ram's horn sounding mm-hmm. a long blast, and then they may go up on the mountain to where they're allowed to go. All right, so they have to wait for the sound of shofar, and then they can go. All right, 14. Mm-hmm. Moses came down from the mountain to the people and warned the people to stay pure, and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. So, who was he talking to? The men. men. (laughs) We assume. (laughs) Maybe a few women. I I assume things haven't changed up. (laughs) On the third day, as morning dawned, there was thunder and lightning and a dense cloud upon the mountain and a very loud blast of the horn, and all the people who were in the camp trembled. Moses led the people out of the camp toward God, God, and they took their places at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke, for the Lord had come down upon it in fire. The smoke rose like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled violently. The blare of the horn grew louder and louder. As Moses spoke, God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Excuse me. The Lord said to Moses, Go down, warn the people not to break through to the Lord to gaze, lest many of them perish. The priests also who come near the Lord must stay pure, lest the Lord break out against them. But Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you have warned us, saying, Set bounds around the mountain and sanctify it. So the Lord said to him, Go down and come back together with Aaron, but let let not the priests or the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. And Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. All right, so we're going to go to your Midrash. On the third day, as morning dawned, there was thunder and lightning and a dense cloud upon the mountain, and a very loud blast of the horn, and all the people who were in the camp trembled. Moses led the people out of the camp. We're looking at verse 17. And Moshe led the people out to greet God. From the camp. Read, are you with me? Yes. So this is that word... Nitzav, to be firmly planted like a 
monument, mm-hmm. right? And they were planted there. What's the next word, Rita? Betachtit. hahar. Sounds like inside. So they are planted tachat. Under. Under. <laughs> Under. This is your tachat. <laughs> your tuchus comes from tachat. Your un- this is your underneath. Right? So they are tachti tahar. They are underneath the mountain. And so the rabbis say, well, what does that mean? And the midrash is God lifted up the mountain, flipped it over, so it was like this, and put it over the people and said, will you accept my turn? <laughs> he made them often they couldn't well, now that's And the people were under the mountain and said, Na'aseh, at everything God has said, Na'aseh, we will do. Or else. <laughs> right, that is the implication. The they are tahahahar, they are under the mountain. How could that be? Well, because God lifted it and said, what do you think? Who's blowing the Would horn? you like to make with me a covenant? Who's blowing the horn? Right? Presumably, we don't know. <laughs> Maybe does shofar mean horn even when it's on the ram still? No. Okay, so it's a ritual horn. It's not a shofar until it's off the animal. Okay. It's not a horn. It's a trumpet. Or a, it's a ritual instrument. Right, and I don't think the word shofar is used here. You used it. I, I used I just it. Wondered if Correct. There. Let me see. Where are we? So, uh, verse 13. Oh yeah, I don't see it. Oh yeah, the sound of the strong Loud. of the shofar and it's going to be a, a strong huge blast right mm. all right um, with regard to the midrash of turning the mountain over and put it up over your head um, I don't know about anybody else but I find that very dramatic <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so like the right so dramatic oh really but my, my point is this, that um, whether it's true or whether it's allegorical, um, obviously big stuff happened that would affect normal people uh, dramatically. Do these people have failure of short-term memory? Because when Moses comes down with um, you know, the Ten Commandments and there's the golden... You know, yeah. uh, golden yeah. And everything else, did they just forget that somebody turned the mountain over? <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I, I don't. I don't quite understand. It seems to be so intense that this happened. That how do people forget it? So how is it that they came through the ten plagues and came through the slaying of the firstborn and they get to the sea and they flip out? <laughs> Do they not remember that God just delivered them from Egypt? Are they really worried that God's not going to take care of Pharaoh? Right. They're, they're, is their memory short? Or are they a traumatized, oppressed people who, have, who are just unable to move to a place of trust 
that lasts very long. And a little bit stubborn. Um, We're going to see that God at some point makes that decision, right? At some point, God's had it with this. You know, you're with me, you're not with me, you're with me, you forget, you're with me, you leave me, you're with me, who, who are you? Right, so God gets tired of that and at some point says, 40 years Y'all are going to wander and your carcasses will drop in this desert. You will not go into the promised land. It will be your children. And a lot of people read that as a punishment. And some years I do too. Right? And I get mad at that character, God. But other years, I really understand it as just stative. It's descriptive. God is like, you can't. It's now clear to me. You can't build the promised land. Because y'all just can't hold it together like you can't trust you can't be with me for more than 45 seconds before you're off and you and you and you you then are like god god who right so god gets it and says okay so it's your kids you're too damaged you're too broken and that's the people we're dealing with god just doesn't know yet how broken they are Right? How unable to stay with it and trust it, what they've seen, what they've experienced. Right? And I talk a lot about this when we get to the Edo, when we get to the golden calf. They're not so different from us. We've witnessed the miraculous in our lives. We've witnessed moments. We've been through experiences where we completely trust that the universe is as it is and it does what it does. There's something else at work that we are connected to that is bigger than all of it and that sustains us and gets us through it. And the next day, we're like, "How could this happen to me? Why? There's no God." I don't, you know, so we, we, you know, and we've witnessed it. We've experienced it. All of us have. Well, I hope. And yet, we, when we get scared, we turn on our own belief and trust and and lived experience. Right? That whatever it is, we're going to get through it. It's going to be okay. There's. Again, there's something bigger we're connected to and it works through us and holds us and other people represent it for us and get us through stuff. Like, and then we go, we just flip out, right? Because we, we get scared and we're broken and we're fragile. And I mean, so lots of times I can relate, I can relate to them. Other times I'm like, God, I have no patience. Like, it's like, really? Like, really? Really? Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I want to, and, and I don't mean to be flip about this midrash where God essentially threatens them with a mountain. Um, I've mentioned it in here several times, but I want to be clear. It's on the same page of Talmud where it says, and and this midrash in the Talmud is about this big. There's a midrash before it that's like this long, really long, and it's about God going to every other people first and offering them the Torah. And the people say, well, what's in it? And God says, it says don't steal. And they're like, well... Oh, that's how we make our living. Like, wait, sorry, right? God says to another people, you know, and they say, what's in it? And God gives, you know, a commandment out of it. And they say, no, we, we can't do that. And it goes to every people's and finally comes to the people of Israel, this tiny little nebbish and nothing people, and says, will you accept my Torah? Do you want to be in covenant with me? And what do they say? Na'aseh. We will do it. Na'aseh v'nishma. We will do it. Then we will hear. What would they agree for? So, so, the mountain being held over their heads is this tiny little midrash on the very same page of Talmud that says God went to every other people and they said no, and only Israel said yes. Yeah. So it's not it's not the primary midrash, the one about the mountain, and they're right next to each other on the same page, right? Which is so Jewish. 
To the point about the brokenness of the people, does that mean that God waited too long? You know, God forbid that God waited too long. You know, it's, did God wait too long? For what? Well, presumably, if they're so broken that they go through these cycles that end up where they're going to wander in the desert for 40 years and die off, that's some state. And when they first went into slavery, presumably they weren't necessarily. You mean, did God wait too long to bring them out? Yes. That 400 years turns out to have been. Maybe 300. 325 might have been better. 173 is really a good sweet spot. So that's a great question. Did God wait too long? Right? If we go with the interpretation that it took a tzaka, it took a great cry from the people to elicit God's response, then God couldn't act before the people cried out. If we don't want to go with that interpretation and say God just kind of decided, did God wait too long? It's a very good question. So I guess part of us has to trust that, as always, Torah is descriptive, not prescriptive in some ways. And so Torah is describing reality that we're all, we all have been in Egypt too long. Right. right. It couldn't be any other way. And I suppose besides the waiting for the cry from the people, presumably in the sort of the normative interpretation, he, he's also waiting for somebody like Moses to arise. Presumably. Who would be the leader. <laughs> right. When the time, it has to happen when the time is right for it to happen. So, so I guess kind of the question is, is the story meant to be as it is the teaching for us, right? Or, or do we want to put our, if, as in a work of fiction, put ourselves in it and go, oh, if only God had operated sooner, yeah. right? That generation would have gotten in, but that's not, that's, that's not the story. That's not fair. That, that's not, right. There's, there's, there's a lot that we seem to be taught, I think, about, by having the people not get into the promised land. Mm -hmm. I frankly like, mm -hmm. in some ways, that our story is that Moshe and these people do not make it to the promised land because our story is not about arrival, mm -hmm. right? The story should have ended with them crossing over, what, mm -hmm. like, right, and taking the first city. Right. But that's not our story because I think part of the power of our story ending where it does and how it does is that it's all about literally the journey. Mm -hmm. It is not about getting in to the promised land. We'll never see the promised land. Mm -hmm. None of us. The story is more about our people than about God. Well, of course. Uh, but but, and so we, but Richard's we, asking, what the people could have been right. different had they been rescued sooner and right. might have gotten into the promised land. But I, but I really think there's a lot of meaning in that, yes. that they don't because that's our, that's our situation. Teller's talking about reality and the reality is we're not going to see the holy land, the promised land that we hope our children will build. Right? That no generation will see the promised land that they're hoping their children will be. We all hope our children will make this world a better one than the one we have now. And no generation of people who have children and grandchildren, God willing, great grandchildren, none of them will ever see, right, the world that, that, that their descendants will build. And that's the human condition, which I think Torah speaks very, very powerfully. It's too. always about struggle. Yeah. And struggling. And yes. Struggling. Yes. It's not about, woohoo, we made it. No. There's nowhere in here. <laughs> nowhere in here. Five minutes they get to sit down and have, you know, some mana and a snack or whatever. But it's like, that, that's it. It's not like, whoa, you know, we made it.
Richard sort of brought up an interesting point, I thought, sort of a contradiction he was trying to understand. But it seems to me there's another one, another contradiction. To the degree that we sort of, or I sort of naively remember this all-seeing, all-knowing God, this story doesn't really portray it that way. Really? Did he really foresee that the people were going to choose to behave in this way? Or did he, is the story really more about us? We behaved in this way, and there were consequences. Because that seems to me a contradiction. This all-seeing, all-knowing, controlling God, it just doesn't add up as the way this story is told. I think you're right. I mean, I think that is a later retrojected image of God that is placed over this story that everyone tries to read this story through. And it doesn't work really well. So, of course, the rabbis spend a lot of ink and a lot of time trying to harmonize a God who seems not to know what the people are going to do. And they say, but it just proves how loving God is, that even knowing, because how could God, God forbid, not know what they were going to do? Of course God knows what they're going to do, but God so loves the people anyway that God keeps entering into these deals and offers and agreements knowing that they are going to betray that agreement. So that's how the rabbis live with it. But I think it's a... I find it a much more powerful reading to say God learns stuff and God gets hurt in ways that God didn't anticipate. Right? You know, the devastation of the sin of the calf, that is devastating to a God who doesn't know they're going to do that. It's less so, I think. To, maybe not, but you know, maybe the rabbis would argue with me. But um, I just think it's really powerful if God doesn't know what's coming, right? And and gets hurt and betrayed. Amy, were the people, the Jews, betrayed by God in the sense, I'm picking up on what Richard's point was, if you, if you pledge yourself to me, I will follow you and obey your commandments. Isn't there a and then? But the end then for the Jews is, you're going to wander for 40 years and never achieve <coughs> real happy. No. No. The, no. They, if they sign on and keep God's commandments, right. they are going right to the promised land. It's two weeks away. That is not what happened. <laughs> they broke the deal with the calf. Then they broke the deal when God said, go fight. And they said, we're too scared. No way. Because they don't trust that God's going to fight for them. And they say no. I mean, They, they continually betray the agreement continually refuse to follow what they're told to do. And that finally, ultimately, that is what gets them. God keeps forgiving and God keeps, because Moshe intervenes and says, take me to then. If you're going to kill them, you got to kill me. Right? So all that stuff that keeps happening. And then finally they do it and God says, I get it. I mean, if we read this version that God is learning and growing and changing in relationship to the people, then God goes... I've had it. They, it's very clear to me they are not going to change. They they disobey again. And God says, that's it. You're going to wander for 40 years. That was not how it started out. The people chose that. So. But they choose it. They chose to abrogate the agreement. Yeah, the people themselves are weak 
uh, venal, untrustworthy. What 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 message? What what does a Jew leave with? Uh, that's why we need what comes next. That's why they need what comes next. Okay. What is it? What is it about the section? Um, God God tells Moses to have the priests come up to the mountain. Okay, I was and waiting for someone to ask it. Like I was waiting. Was Thank you, down. Susan, for your very careful and reading. Who are the priests? Who? So that's what she's asking. Yeah. Who? How are there priests? There are no priests yet. We don't have the Mishkan. We don't have the commissioning of the priests. We don't have the, what do you call it? Oil stone. The consecrating of the priests. Anointing. Yeah, the anointing. So um, so how do we have priests? So either, what's my first answer going to be? Either, what? It's a story from another place. It's a variant tradition that has another story about the origin of the priesthood. Um, but if we don't want to go there, and God forbid, say there's other written traditions or oral traditions that we've lost. This is the word, right? This is how it's supposed to be. Then who might these priests be? Who was supposed to be the priests? Aaron's. Uh, Aaron's. Aaron's. Before that. The firstborn. Remember, the firstborn is redeemed by the Levites. Right? And the Kohanim, that baby is redeemed from service. Right? Pijion Haben. Right? The redemption of the firstborn is about every firstborn is consecrated to God. Right? Because they were spared in Egypt, but also the firstborn of the animals, the first fruit of the trees. All of that is God's. Kol Rechem. Everything that opens the womb belongs to God. But like the Israeli army. <laughs> Not the best thing to have just the firstborn be the ones that are going to be your priests. Better to have a priestly class, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like, right? Mm-hmm. Every Israelite serves. Every Israeli serves in the IDF. Well, the IDF is like you know, <laughs> maybe not the best idea, right? Some of the people we have to train and feed and deal with who do not belong in the military. So, so the firstborn are redeemed by the Kohanim, by the priests. Yes? Who take their place as the priests. So if you want to deal with it that way, then the priests are the firstborn, meaning the firstborn who were designated to serve as priests when there's a mishkan. You pick. So, God forbid, God didn't get it right, right? God forbid. Um, so, remember we've talked about, how do we talk about a theophany? How do they represent, in writing, the experience of a theophany? It's confusion. It's confusion. It's up, it's down. Come, tell the people to come up. No, they're not supposed to come up. Well, are they supposed to come up? Yes, they're supposed to come like, up. It's, it's all kind of like, right? It's a, it's a literary device in order to communicate the the disruption of normality that happens at a theophany. A lot of people. It seems to me that one of the things I learned here is that um, what you're reading in terms of a contemporaneous story is actually written hundreds of years afterwards. Thousands. Um, it's a little bit like the Gospels, and you know. <coughs> How, how well can you remember what happened 400 years ago? Um, yes. There's a similar thing here. So a lot of this 
there's a lot of interpretation that is stitched into to this writing because it, it, it's being written hundreds of years after it's supposed to be. So I'm going to push it further. That's great that you're already in this class, you know, long enough to go. Oh, right, this is not being right. This is written with. But I'm going to push it further and say it's not just written hundreds and hundreds of years after the event. It's this is. This is a mythological right. event, right. right? And yes, there's hundreds of years of the story being told mm -hmm. in different ways, in different places, and a redactor sits down with those and has to put it together into this. But I want to be clear that it's not like, okay, so here's what happened, and then there's a lot of interpretation. In the, right? It, right. it ha What happened? Did George Washington cut down a cherry tree? Right. So this is, our, this is a mythic <laughs> moment. Right, and as I, I brought for you last year, I should have brought it. Yeah. Uh, Michael Lerner, I believe it is, Rabbi Michael Lerner has this wonderful piece about what is this? If, if we don't believe in a God that descends on a mountain, that, that we don't believe a God actually came down on a mountain and spoke to a guy named Moses, and this is the result of that. If we don't believe that, what happened? Mm -hmm. Right, because most of us in this room believe it's important to study this moment because this moment is for us a mythically true experience so then what does that mean <laughs> right and and a lot of people are like oh so then what should this mean to us if it's some guy just sat down and wrote it and blah, blah, blah. so all of that and michael lerner has this wonderful piece and it's called something happened <clears throat> right and that's all we know mm -hmm. those of us who are progressive jews who don't believe right like i said that a deity came down and gave these words if we believe but yet it is a sacred text it's because something happened and this is the Israelite side of the record of what happened. Yeah? Which is the most profound way I can express why this to me is a sacred text and, it's, and a sacred conversation. And it's fed through the soul of Jews over a long period yes. of time. And the interpretation this, continues. Right, it, came, it came through a lot of different people, but it, it's, as you said, it's our story. It's our story. And, this, and something happened. Something happens when we show up at Sinai. Something happens when we heed the call to covenant and to relationship. So how do we teach the children in it's religious really school? hard. I mean, <laughs> suddenly there is no Santa Claus. Or, you know, it's it's really hard, true. and I don't. I feel like I should turn off the microphone. Mm -hmm. I don't. I don't think we've. I don't think we have a good answer, and I don't think anybody does, and I don't think any Jewish religious school does. I really don't, because I think you can't teach mythology to four-year-olds who are very much about concrete reality. You can tell the story, but you can't say, well, we don't really mean that God came down. We don't really mean God spoke. We don't really mean... It's an idea. Like we... You, <laughs> You can teach them the story, and then you have to trust that you have them long enough in conversation that they have that mythic moment in their minds and hearts, and we layer on top of that what that means for us. I think that's how it always works with mythology, with children, right? That you teach them the story, the story lives in them. It lives in them as a metaphor as well as, okay, this actually happened, right? And you work with the metaphor in them for the rest of of their time with you. What we don't get 
is time with them to stay in the conversation. We teach them the story and we don't talk about it again because then we're doing Jewish history and then we're doing Israel and then we're doing early Zionism and then we're doing the holidays and then we're doing your bar mitzvah prep. We never revisit the story. Oh, I won't say never. We don't consistently revisit the story as they mature and as they developmentally change we don't bring the story to their new appropriate developmental a you know stage in order for them to mature most Jews have a pediatric knowledge of Torah and I do not say that as a criticism of the Jewish people it's a criticism of of, of, our, of what we've committed to as a Jewish people in terms of bringing our kids, schlepping our kids, making them come, making it interesting, living it in our homes. Ask me what my kid knows about this. Well, as a pediatrician, I won't take offense at what you say. <laughs> <laughs> Harold. How, however, I think that what happens is what, you, is what you're seeing here, which is a struggling with certain questions because of the pediatric um, exposure to what went on and then not not going further into it. Right. And so and since that doesn't happen, people are stuck with I don't believe that happened, so why should it have mm. any value if it's not true, quote unquote true. Mm. Like Right, and so our job as educators, and and thank God every single one of you chooses to be in this room, be, right? Because then our, then our work is to say, okay, what does true mean? Something happened, and something happens every day. The voice goes out from Sinai. Even the rabbis say this: Hayom. Don't read Hayom today in the story. Hayom today. The voice is calling from Sinai. Will you shut up and sit still, Jews, long enough to hear what the call is and to respond? Right? With Naaseh. Okay. As terrifying as it is, I'm going to do it. Whatever's called forth from me today to live into this relationship with the divine. But we don't... We don't stop long enough, right? A, to even hear or attend to that, none much less have the conversation about the conversation about it, right? This is the Jewish conversation about that, whatever that is. We don't stop long enough to have the conversation about the conversation. And so people are stuck in this, if it didn't happen, why should I care? It's like, what does happen mean? Right? Does it mean it happened to a certain people on a certain day in the year 1253 BCE? Is that the only thing that makes it valuable? I hope not, because I'm spending my life right exploring how it's valuable, regardless of what happened. I don't say it didn't happen. Whatever, it happened, it didn't happen. That's not the power of this. It's what we in this room are talking about when we talk about moments of revelation. Right? And... And that, and that, Rita, it's a very long answer to your question. Mm-hmm. We're not doing a good job of, of bringing the story along mm-hmm. with our young Jews as they develop. And what's happening is they leave. After their bar mitzvah, they leave. Because what does this mumbo-jumbo mean to them if they haven't been part of a very deep, serious conversation, right? And so then we hope they somehow wander into a Jewish studies class or, or some other place, and they get turned on by a teacher, by a class, by a conversation, and begin that long journey back mm-hmm. to why this should matter to them. And that's 
problem with Jewish adults. That, I mean, not, not just kids. It's a problem with Jewish adults. Absolutely. It's a big challenge of no, progressive Absolutely. Jews. Absolutely. We're here. They do a terrible job. If you look at how we've all been yeah. raised, um, history with a capital H, whether we go through American history, European history, or whatever, it, it's it's always based on specific dates, specific times, specific battles, specific things. <coughs> and and um, there's um, basically people who have written contemporaneously about these sorts of things. We're approaching what we're talking about here as history, quote unquote, when in fact it's likely not history in the same right. way. And that's why we're, we're right. struggling. Right. We're conditioned to reading it as history exactly. and trying to value it in on the same list of criteria that we evaluate historical texts. Right. right. And that is not the importance of these we, texts we for most of us. Regard it as metaphor. Correct. Mm-hmm. And the metaphor that I see is God is the parent and the adults are the children. <laughs> right, right. And there's, I mean, there's so many beautiful metaphors, I think, in this relationship between God and the people, right? Sometimes God is the lover, <clears throat> the beloved, and the beloved betrays that exclusive intimacy and worships, goes to bed with a cow, <laughs> Right? How devastating is that to the beloved, right? A parent, okay, you expect your kids to rebel, whatever. But if it's the beloved and and we are having our wedding night, right, and God is finishing signing the ketubah with Moses, Moses comes down, God's getting ready for the wedding night, and what happens? They're in a tent with somebody else. (laughs) That is a much more powerful Moment, right, of betrayal, right? So there's so many metaphors that that evoke, right, different ways of reading the text, different experiences for God, for us, the implications, the consequences, right? All right. Ah, we are not even at the best part. At the best part. (laughs) (laughs) Bert, I'm doing this for Bert. I wanted Uh us to get to where Bert wanted to be. All right, so let's get there for Bert. Before I go on. Okay, the last sentence I just read is, and Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that the, the words I'm about to read came out of Moses' mouth? Uh, no, because this is Vayedaber Elohim. The next the words next are, and God said. Right? But, but Moses is not page. quoting God. Turn the page. No. Here, okay. Oh, okay. So we don't know what Moses oh, okay. said to the people. Okay. Right? Okay. Maybe Moshe just gave the rest of the instructions. Get ready because you're not Get ready because gonna... it's about to get real. Right. And you're not going to see this in a government building. According to, <laughs> right. this, according okay. to the Supreme Court. So okay. let's go. <laughs> God spoke all these words saying, I, the Lord, am your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods beside me. You shall not make for yourself a sculptured image or any likeness of what is in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am an impassioned God, visiting the guilt of the parents upon the children, upon the third and upon the fourth generations of those who reject me, but showing kindness to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. 
You shall not swear falsely by the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not clear one who swears, swears falsely by his name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you, your son or daughter, your male or female slave, or your cattle, or the stranger who is within your settlements. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that you may long endure on the land that the Lord your God is assigning to you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's <clears throat> wife, or his male or female slave, or his ox or his ass, or anything that is your neighbor's. Oh. All the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the blare of the horn, and the mountain smoking, and when the people saw it, they fell back and stood at a distance. You speak to us, they said to Moses, and we will obey. But let not God speak to us, lest we die. Moses answered the people, Be not afraid, for God has come only in order to test you, and in order that the fear of him may be ever with you, so that you do not go astray. So the people remained at a distance, while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. So the rabbis ask the question, at what point did verse 15 and 16 happen? That's a big question for the rabbis. Why does it matter where that is, where that happened? The people witnessed the thunder and the lightning, the blare of the horn and the mountain smoking, and when they saw it, they fell back and stood at a distance and said, you speak to us, Moses, and we'll do it, but don't let God talk to us anymore because we're going to die. We can't handle it. Well, it puts the leadership, so to speak, on Moses. Right, but why does it matter where that happens? What I'm suggesting is it doesn't happen right here, after the Ten Commandments. If it happens before, what does that mean? They didn't hear the Ten Commandments. Because they went away. Because they freaked out. So the rabbis, the rabbis ask the question, what exactly did the people hear? Right? So, if, so it, it makes a big difference when they flipped out. And when they said to Moshe, you do it. You, you bring us the word. We can't handle it. So the first words of the Ten Commandments, right? So let's look at the first thing God says, right? Right. Why do I try to print? I really don't understand. All right, so the first words, Anochi, Adonai, Elohecha. All right, these are the first words of the Ten Commandments. All right, so first of all, that's commandment number one. What's commandment number one? I am Yud Hei your God. Commandment number one. All right, so there's a Midrash that says, the people only heard that commandment. And then they flipped out. 
Right? They heard, I am Adonai, your God, who brought you out of the land of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods beside me. That, that's it. That's all the people heard. And then they flip out and say to Moshe, you go. Some Midrashim say, no, they heard the first two commandments. <laughs> right? They heard, I am Adonai, your God, blah, 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 and you shall not make for yourself any graven images. Okay, and then the people flipped out. Right? Other Midrashim say, mm-mm. They heard only the first two words of the whole thing. And another rabbi comes to argue, no, it is not the first two words that they heard. All the people heard was the first word, and they freaked. God just spoke Anochi, and the people flipped out, right, and said, Moshe, you go. So all they heard was Anochi, I, and they freaked. But there's a beautiful midrash. It says, all they heard was the first letter of Revelation. What is the first letter of Revelation? Aleph. What sound does an Aleph make? So what did the people hear? Nothing. People heard silence. Revelation happened for the people in silence. That's where they confronted the divine and flipped out. Right? So it's, or I shouldn't say they flipped out. They flipped out, you know, everything's smoking, everything's going crazy, and revelation begins, and revelation begins in silence. Right? Anochi, I am Adonai your God. This is what the people heard. Presumably, there are. They're hearing this silence in the midst of everything else that is going on. They are you're, you're seeing you're seeing flame, you're hearing thunder, you're hearing and then but all goes silent. Stop motion. But you can still you can still see it happening, but there's no sound. Described as only a good, committed science fiction reader can describe it. Thank you, Richard. Right? So you have, you know, Everything's going crazy, and then imagine a vacuum, right? And everything, that kind of silence, right, is deafening. Mm -hmm. So, but the beauty of this tradition is people want to say that all we're about is words and commandments and blah, 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 but there's a very long tradition of saying God is found, revelation happens in silence. We have long had this as a spiritual practice and as an awareness. We lost it. We moved away from it. I get that. I'm not denying that. But what I'm saying is, it's not Madonna and Kabbalah like that. We're like, oh yeah, we want to do that, right? It, it's here. It is authentically ours. The teaching that yes, of course, it manifests in words and commandments and ways we're supposed to behave in the world and obligations to one another and to the planet and to the divine. Of course, it begins when we shut up and sit still and get quiet enough to hear it. That is the only way it's possible, is that it starts in the Aleph. It starts in the deep silence of showing up, of being willing to receive what's going to come, right? And we don't do it. Oh, 
Lisa, will you run to the copy machine? <laughs> Can you talk about the third word? Oh, uh, it's such a great sample. <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk about the third word, which is singular? The whole thing is singular, actually. No. Nope. You can't. Check that out. What's that? Are you good? Yep. It's not singular. So there's, so, oh, I thought you meant the L was singular. No, I meant Elohecha. Uh, oh, this singular, the Ha. That it's spoken it, to the it. individual. So the each individual word, yeah. had to show up. Each individual had to be ready to hear revelation and receive revelation. And the Sfadanet, the Rabbi Yehuda Leib of Ger, the Ger Rebbe, goes further and says, each Israelite, thank you, each Israelite who was at Revelation, and, and which Israelites were at Revelation? Which ones? All of them. All of them. So every single Israelite had to be at Revelation. Each, each individual heard Revelation through their own mind and their own experience. So each Israelite had their own interpretation of what got said at that mountain. And that without any single interpretation, revelation would have been incomplete. Say that again. Right. So every every single Israelite was at revelation. Every single one. (coughs) And it had to be every single one. Every single Israelite heard God and heard what God said through their own lens, their own experience. So it was different for every single one of them there. Nobody heard the same thing. And had one of them been missing, revelation would have been incomplete. Because that interpretation was necessary for revelation to happen in its fullness. So what are the rabbis saying? What is Rabbi Yehuda Leib of Ger saying? He's saying every single one of us has to show up and take in Torah through our own lens, our own brokenness, our own arguments, our own, I don't even want to hear any, our own loving it, our own moments where metaphor is so beautiful and so powerful. We each have to show up ready to fully engage or revelation remains incomplete. Our interpretation of Torah is necessary for God's revelation to be complete. That puts a whole new spin on the obligation of Torah study, doesn't it? Right? Not that you're a bad person if you don't do it, Cecile. Right? That's on you. Rather, God's revelation cannot be complete until Cecile takes it in, right? And interprets it through her own unique experience and her own lens and her own soul. That that is a whole nother way of talking about the obligation of us showing up. You know the movement. You know uh, not the movement. The organization, the central organization of the Reconstructionist movement, has changed its name. It is no longer the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College and the <laughs> Reconstructionist Jewish <laughs> Communities. Is that what it was? The Reconstructionist Jewish. Jewish Reconstructionist Communities. So that was the lay arm, the synagogue arm, and the and the seminary arm was the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College. That's a very long name for an organization, right? Reconstructionist Rabbinical College, Reconstructionist Jewish Communities, right? How do you sign on to a petition with a name like that, right? So the name had to be changed of that organization. The name has changed now to Reconstructing Judaism. Deeply rooted 
boldly relevant. So reconstructing Judaism, why am I bringing that up? Because because the movement has decided to name itself what we think is actually our obligation, is to reconstruct Judaism. We are reconstructing Judaism every time we show up ready to open ourselves to these words, ready to open ourselves to these ideas, ready to listen in silence, which we're going to do in a little while, ready to listen in silence to the call that terrifies us. It is a brave act to walk in this room. Good for you. It is a brave act to walk into this room, to join the Jewish people. Mazel Tov, we have a new Jew among us whose mikvah was yesterday, who's been living attached to the Jewish people, marinating in the Jewish people for decades and decades and decades. We are glad it is finally official. Uh, It is a brave thing to do, because who wants to sit in silence or engage with the call to what's actually demanded of us? in any given situation, right? Like, that's that's a big deal. The people are terrified. <coughs> With good reason, says Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg, right? Because we're a lot more comfortable, really, running around, right? <laughs> la, 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 right? Um, she says, that's how we live, in, fr- in constant frenetic motion, hurling down the street with lattes and paper cups, moving from office to gym to post-work activities, and then going to bed and doing the same thing all over again. And it's a comfortable place to be moving from place to place. We can constantly be in quest mode, constantly trying to find the thing that we seek, whatever it is. When you seek, there's a goal, a raison d'etre, something to get you out of bed every day. We are a nation of, as the language is often used, spiritual seekers. But finding, (laughs) that is a whole nother ballgame. She says, I mean, it's it's a very interesting piece that of course I'm going to give you to take home with you. She says, but I wonder if there isn't an element of avoiding hearing God's revelation in this midrash that she quotes. She says, what God wants of you What God asks of you is not always easy. In fact, it's usually not easy, which is why the revelation story is so frightening and why in many places in the Torah, before God speaks for the first time, God says, Al-Tirah, don't be afraid. Not because hearing the voice of ultimate reality is scary, although that's probably true too, (laughs) but because the kind of information that's about to be imparted is going to throw you for a loop and a half. God calls, and your problems have just begun. Because the people now, if they hear, if, they, if we're seeking, we're never fine, right? If we're seeking, we just get to run around looking for something, right? If we have to sit down and shut up and actually listen, and then hear, we're on the hook. It's fairly comfortable to seek, but once the Israelites stop and actually hear what God has to say, they will be on the hook for quite a bit. Their lives will change drastically with just the giving of the Ten Commandments, let alone all of the Torah. The ability to pretend that they're not responsible for half of a covenant is gone. And there are a lot of painful, horrible discomforts in its place. Not only do this, don't do that, but even worse, what comes later in Leviticus, you shall be holy. Oh, shoot. <laughs> that doesn't sound like much fun. <laughs> How many comforts and distractions and petty ways in which we indulge our less admirable qualities do we have to give up to do that? Could we get there if we tried even? 
It's certainly easier to be a seeker because when one seeks, one lacks the information that actually requires action, demands response, engages meaningful responsibility. And this is the challenge that we live with, I believe, in our country right now for sure. But in the world community right now, we are in a crisis of being so happy being distracted. I'm so busy. Talk, ask somebody, how are you? Let's, and just listen to what people say. Rarely, uh, they may say fine because they don't think you really want to know. But if they're because <laughs> mostly we don't. We're just asking because that's what's polite, right? So, but if you really listen, people say, "God, I'm just I'm so busy." Like, I'm, you know, it's like, well, you could stop that, <laughs> right? Like that—that's a choice, <laughs> right? We're happy to be busy. We really want to be busy because we want to be distracted. We don't want. We love seeking. We're seekers. We're seekers. We want to look. We want to look. We want to look. We want to look. But really, we do not want to find, and we do not want to stop and settle down and have to respond to what we know will be our responsibility to covenant. What if we were really, truly responsive to the covenant? What would that mean about what I couldn't do this afternoon that's so much easier than than really thinking about what that calls me into in terms of my behavior and in terms of what I need to be about and what I need to be focused on and what I need to not be focused on what I need to not be doing. It's just, it's it's a grown-up right thing, this be a holy people. And this moment of, and I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, that's the terror I think that Sinai evokes in the people. That's what Ruttenberg is saying, right? And I believe, and Zornberg talks about it too, that the terror isn't just ultimate reality starts manifesting. Like, that's, yeah, that's scary enough. But it's what will that demand from me in terms of how I live my life? That is terrifying because it means I have to take responsibility and I have to be a grown-up. And who wants to do that? Right? Like it's way easier to say, I don't know, I don't know, I'm a seeker, I don't know, right? I'm on the path. Like you know, it's another thing to say, yes, we're always seeking, yes, but we also know some stuff, right? That, that we just read, and the stuff we just read is not easy. You shall have no other gods before me, right? That means television. That means, right? You shall have no other, nothing else shall be an organizing principle in your life but yud hey vav hey. Existence, being, capital B, and all that that implies, that is the only thing you are allowed to worship as what should be the absolute definitive about what your priorities are. Well, how many of us line up what our priorities are with this being at the top, right? We have lots of other stuff that takes that spot. That's called idolatry. When we worship a piece of the whole, a piece of reality, capital R, that's idolatry. Rabbi Rami Shapiro says, and we have we do it all the time. We do the Egel all the time. We do the golden calf all the time when we take a piece of reality and call it the whole thing and make that the operating principle. But then we're, we're leaving the agreement. We're betraying the beloved every time we do that because the beloved just longs for us to show up and behave how you behave with the beloved. Gently, open, Vulnerable, responsible, responsive, right? And God is always calling, and it's so lonely. 
because we're so busy. We're always on the phone. We're always texting, right? And I think think of God as a three-year-old. Uh, hello? I need you. I need your attention. I need your love. And we're too busy, right? So for me, this terror is real. And the opportunity is here every single day. And the question for all of us is how do we, how do we cultivate responsiveness to the call? that's going out right now. And Shabbat, right, is a commandment because Shabbat is part of the Big Ten because Shabbat, I believe, is one of the only ways it will happen. Is that we A, create it together because we ain't going to do it on our own because it's just too scary. So we come together and we create this vacuum of silence filled with music filled with singing, filled with prayer, filled with storytelling, filled with a great scholar who's going to talk to us tonight about Jesus, the Jewish storyteller. Amy Jo Levine is going, Dr. Amy Jo Levine is going to speak tonight about Jesus, the Jewish story. So it's coming together to do that and stopping all the other and just focusing just one day out of six. I mean, one day out of seven. That's the ratio. It's not every day. You don't have to do it all day every day. We're not monks. We're not supposed to be. But the ratio is one to six. You can do your lattes and running around and do your gym and whatever for six days, but one out of the one out of seven needs to be focused on this. So let us this Shabbat commit ourselves to figuring out just one, just one practice this Shabbat, one that will bring us closer to the place where we can truly uh, be responsive to the call of Sinai, which goes out every moment of every day. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.